0: Welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast looking at how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. I'm Christina Patterson. I'm a journalist, author and coach. And today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Robin Ince, comedian, author, broadcaster and, in his words, professional idiot. He's the co-creator and presenter of the BBC Radio 4 show The Infinite Monkey Cage, which has won multiple awards, and the author of I'm a Joke and So Are You. He won a Celebrity Mastermind, is in the Guinness Book of Records for his world tour with Brian Cox, hosts a number of podcasts and is the author of a wonderful new book, The Importance of Being Interested, Adventures in Scientific Curiosity. In this conversation, he talked about the power and joy of curiosity, wonder and doubt.
1: Welcome to the Art of Work, Robin. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast. And I absolutely love your new book, The Importance of Being Interested, and can't help thinking that the title could pretty much sum up your life and career. Does it? I think
2: it does. I think it's the drive now. And I think the older I've got, the more that I've realised it's just so important to try and engage with as many things as possible. You know, I accept that I haven't got the kind of mind that will ever get any deep understanding of the universe, but I can be a flibbity gibber leaping around
1: You talk about stand-up comedy being a place where curiosity and anxiety collide. How did your own curiosity lead you into a life in comedy? I realise there could be a book-length answer to that question, but perhaps (laughs) perhaps the exact summary on this occasion...
2: I can refer everyone for the longest answer to my book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, still available. <laughs> but it is, uh, it was, um, I mean, I loved comedy and I was always a bit of a kind of slightly shy outsider kid and then I would watch things like The Goodies and then later on Rick Mayle and Alexi Sale and The Young Ones and The Comic Strip Presents and started going to see stand-up gigs when I was 15. So I think I just I just loved that chance of, of getting on stage, even though I was off stage, quite a nervous person. Um, and somehow you then have control... When you're on stage but I don't think I realized how much you could use it to then spread curious ideas and curiosity really till I was about a little bit over 10 years into doing stand-up and suddenly I was like oh I always wanted to be a stand-up but what am I doing with it and that's when I started to put in maybe little bits of astronomy or cosmology or whatever it might be
1: amazing in in 2019, you did a world tour with Brian Cox that reached an audience of more than a quarter of a million people. That put you both in the Guinness Book of Records for the most tickets sold for a science show. What was it like doing that tour and what did it feel like to get that accolade?
2: It's an interesting thing, really, actually, because, I mean, it was great doing it. And it was really bizarre because we started doing live shows, I think, in uh, 2011. I remember when we played Manchester Arena and there were 12,000 people in there. And we did the show and we didn't really take that into account until we were sitting up on the moors a few hours later. And we just suddenly went, was a lot of people, wasn't it? There was a lot of people coming to a science lecture that I interrupted every now and again. And it's a very beautiful thing to see things like one of my favourite things. We very often get families coming. And uh, we'd been at the arena about a month before and then I was doing a small gig and, th- and this woman came up to me and she said, oh, I was meant to be coming to see the gig with uh, my granddad. But unfortunately, from the time that we bought the ticket to the time of the gig, he died in between. And, um, and so I came along with my dad. And We don't really get on that well. But then we found out that we both loved astronomy as we watched it. And now we go out looking at stars and things like that are just, you know, it's really delightful to be able to communicate in in that kind of way and then find out that it was, you know, it had a separate use to it than just maybe some of the little bits of knowledge that people pick up from it.
1: How wonderful and and literally life changing. And I mean, all of that is those connections are the lifeblood of being a being a comedian and and a, a speaker and, you know, entertainer, performer, educator, whatever you want to call it, the uh, idiosyncratic and particular mix that you are but then the pandemic hit which is pretty much the worst thing that can happen to a comedian I for this podcast or an earlier incarnation of it I've interviewed people who really did think it would be over in a few weeks I imagine as an honorary scientist you didn't what was your response when you realized what was going on
2: well the first response was right we've got to make loads of stuff that was it. It was kind of uh, the real, uh, the last gig that I did in front of an audience. Oddly enough, I ended up uh, attempting to explain Black Holes to Ed Miliband. And then that was the last time that I played in front of an audience for, you know, over a year. And so the moment that we knew there was a lockdown coming and the moment that I knew that even if there wasn't a lockdown I would not be playing in rooms for a long time I chatted to my friend Josie Long and my friend Trent who I do a lot of podcasts with and we went let's do a live show every single morning that'll be what we'll do and you know we tested it out and the technology didn't quite work me like there's no way we can get this ready for Monday and then I got in contact with all of my friends and people that I've met in the past you know people like Mark Gatiss and Joe Brand and musicians that I knew and so my first reaction to it was to descend into busyness and to just go we just need to create loads of stuff and that was for a double reason one I know that some of the people who kind of come to a lot of the events that I do with my friends uh they really uh they love that connection and sometimes they are people slightly on the outside and then suddenly they're in a room with loads of other people that are interested in niche things and things that other people might think are strange so we wanted to give them a connection but of course the connection for us was incredibly important too and it's been as I've been going around on this book tour as well it's been really nice that every night when I've been signing books people said oh during the lockdown you know being able to tune into that thing and you go oh good that had purpose as well, and that's obviously mm. what we're always all after. But it was so I descended into busyness for for well, actually, I think we ended up doing 450 hours of live broadcasting in the first year of the pandemic, and then also did loads of other shows as well that were pre-recorded. So we just made stuff. That was it, and you know, it just and and that's what I love doing because I can either do nothing or everything. I can't really do the in between. <laughs>
1: when when i look at your website and and the all the different podcasts you do book shambles cosmic shambles tips for existence science shambles and realize that almost every one involves reading at least one book i mean i just feel like i need a lie down i read and review books partly for a living how the hell do you manage the reading
2: do you know what? I'm not very good at retention. So what I do is I can pick up a book and I can race through it and I can go, oh, that's good. That's good. In fact, it's how I read generally. I've got quite a kind of scatty mind. It's something that I've only really realised in the last, again, something that came out of lockdown actually in the last few months of realising that I'm not very good at being linear. I'm not very good at being able to create things with a narrative arc. Um, but I am quite good at just pouring lots of things in my head and then shaking them up and then seeing what comes out. So that's what I do is I'll always, you know, I, I'll rattle through the book. And and just think, yeah, that's a oh. Let's talk about that. and Let's talk about that. And I think that kind of manic uh, frame of mind that I have is useful for doing those things. But then sometimes people will say, "What did you read last year?" And I go, "Oh, I don't know. I know I read a few hundred books. What were they?"
1: Well, I can't. I mean, God, I'm so jealous, Robin. I can't tell you. I re- I review books for the Sunday Times, and I wish I could rattle through them. And I still can't remember a thing about them when I have read them, except I just have to Google my reviews. <laughs> <laughs> Do you do it? I think, mean, how? But that's how a handy
2: you... thing, isn't it? That you can go, What did I read last year? Let me do a Google search with my name in the Sunday Times. And I can go, What did I read last year? Let's see what the podcasts are. So at least we we, we found a good notebook system, haven't we?
1: Yes, no such thing as uh, yesterday's fish and chip paper anymore. Yeah. For, for good or ill. Um, but I mean, it sounds as though business warded off the void if, if if it was going to hit you and too much in the way of the sort of existential anxiety that I think many of us battled with or have been battling with during the pandemic. But And you, and you founded, sort of started Patreon pages and so on. But you, there must have been, you know, a big financial hit because, um, you know, comedians earn their money through doing gigs with lots of people and you couldn't do that. Were there any times when... You felt really anxious about that, or, or more broadly, about, um, you know, how how long this was going to last, how you were going to cope professionally, or did the business ward all of that off?
2: No, not at all. It it really it did worry me a great deal. I mean, you know, at the moment I'm doing this huge book tour, but I don't earn a penny from it mm-hmm. for you know for three months, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you know, I've just finished a, a year and a half of not really earning anything. So I did worry about it. But then I also realised my good fortune that having had a few years of doing an enormous amount of work and not being someone that spends an enormous amount of money. And, uh, you know, I was thinking I'm so lucky that I'm still secure. I'm secure for the time being. You know, hopefully it won't go into next year. Um, And then it was an odd yeah it's I mean I started selling my books as well I suddenly thought I've got so many books and I know that my wife would like a little bit more space in the house and it was quite a fun thing to do I set up a page Mm -hmm. on Instagram and I would put up like 15-20 books and I every one though was a tremendous I I hate getting rid of books I've got way too many I have far more than I will ever be able to to read in my life but I love surrounding myself with books again because each one might contain a little idea in it but then there was this nice thing that I would sell the books to people and they might be people who come to to one of my gigs or whatever and i would i would see where they lived and i would like oh i remember when i played keswick and they went oh yeah it was it was uh, our mum that asked you that really weird question in fact this was uh, when i when i was playing in keswick once i was doing uh, an event about my previous book which kind of had stuff about mental health and about comedy so questions were normally about something like either depression or Laurel and Hardy or sometimes both mm-hmm. and this one woman had her hand up and her daughter was with her and went no don't ask it mum and I went no what would you like to ask because oh my mum's got a stupid question and I said what's your question and she went I just wondered when I was in the queue someone was talking about the thinking man's crumpet and I can't remember her name can you and I said yeah it's- <laughs> It's Joan Bakewell. And she went, oh, thank you very much. You see, I told you he'd know. And then I imagined all the rest of the arms going down behind it. Like, oh, I was going to ask her <laughs> as well. And uh, now when her da- her daughters came, uh, both of them, to an event I did in Carlisle last week, and they now always have uh, their books signed to Joan Bakewell. Oh, so it's kind of brilliant. this nice little bizarre thing. But, you know, they, they kept in contact. And, and lots of the people that I was selling books to... You know that they were. It was. It was a fun thing to do because, again, it was about keeping that connection going. And and I think that is so much part. You know, I'm someone who can be very insular, and I think you know a lot of the work that I do is me persuading myself. That, you know, in terms of happiness and, and things like that, sometimes it is the battle between, um, you know, the negative thoughts and, right, well, I, I have to find a way that I can focus on the positive things or focus on thinking about star systems or whatever it might be. Um, so when that was taken away, the, every now and again there would be a sudden you know maybe for a period of six or seven weeks where i would have a little bit more of 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 a battle to see the brightness of the world
1: mm. you you somebody you mention a lot in your book who i adore is beckett and um obviously a lot of uh, comedians or comics or funny of our funniest writers have been people with a tendency towards depression at the minimum existential anxiety but but that can be depression. Where would you place yourself on that spectrum?
2: I never know. I always worry about those kind of things. I mean, I had an interesting conversation with someone uh, about about six weeks ago. There's a, a, a guy uh, does a podcast, Jamie and Lyon. Uh, he's got um, Asperger's and ADHD and he got in contact with me and he said, uh, um, oh, can I, would you be up for having a conversation? Cause I'd like to talk to you about something. And then, we end up having this kind of two-hour conversation about the the possibility of um, of me having ADHD, and uh, and it was very interesting. And I don't know, obviously, but I um, I can go through quite long. Like even I was doing a gig the other day, and beforehand I just was having that kind of that melancholy where you go, I don't think I can talk on stage, and I don't, and, and and I'm feeling very very emotional about the whole thing, and that had gone on for about a week beforehand, and then I did a show, and it was kind of a lot of it was making up stuff, and it's me allowing my brain just to let everything out at incredible speed, and I felt tremendously better afterwards for a few mm. days. So so I do, I don't I I'm always worried because I think like a lot of people you worry that there's 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 almost like there's real depression. There's there's an in an incredible, you know, you know, burden. And then there's one where you just in a in a in a negative frame of mind, maybe experiencing things like you know um, suicide ideation and that kind of thing. Um, but I think yeah, we're we're always people are always worried that if you say anything, you go, oh well, that's not proper. This is the real way, you know that that. So so I don't really know because I get w- when I'm in a certain frame of mind, I think that's the frame of mind I've been in all the time.
1: Yes, exactly. You
2: know, doing doing that 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 thing. But certainly, this idea, whether it's true or not, uh, when I talked to about ADHD, it seems to make incredible uh, sense you know when you suddenly get someone telling you these and they go through various different things and you go oh i 'm fifty two years old and this definitely makes sense as the, of the, of the the way that my my mind works and the, and the way that I kind of uh fight with the world.
1: Mm, well, I think a lot of those things, like people didn't talk about Asperger's. Not, not I'm not suggesting that you are <laughs> that you have Asperger's, but people didn't talk about that when I, I'm about your age, slightly older. But people didn't talk about that when we were children to the same extent. Though there was a lot of it in my family, as it happens. But I think we have. I mean, I think it's a kind of moot point as to whether these, you know, whether you call them diagnostic tools or whatever, whether they help or not. Because I do think there's a sense in which if you kind of overly medicalize things, then there, there are dangers attached to that, I think, because in mm. one way, we're all, you know, sort of our own individual peculiar characters. And, and in a way, there's a lot to celebrate in that without being stuck in a box.
2: Well, I think you're right. I mean, one of the things that it, it gave me, having had this discussion, was for the first time, I was like, stop feeling that you have been useless because you know all of the shows that I write and and my stand-up is very much made up on on stage so eventually it will often become uh you know the things will become routines but I'm not a a writer of stand-up I I have scribbly notes and then start talking about them and I would always go I came up with this idea about art and it was going to be I was going to have a beginning a middle and end and even when I'm on the train to do the gig for the first time I imagine doing that and then I start talking and then there's another connection then there's another connection then there's another connection very often people come up to me after gig and say um right I've, I actually made some notes here's 25 stories that you began can you tell me how they ended and it's you know and and that was then talking to Jamie and line about this I, for the first time I thought maybe you just can't maybe that's not your thing maybe that's not what and, and in fact look at the fact that what I can do when I'm on stage is make a lot of very, very quick connections and every t- and every time my mind sees somewhere else to go, it'll go, just go there now. Don't worry about where you are halfway through something. They're still enjoying it. It's everything's all right. It's okay. Just keep going with it. And that for the first time is thirty years of a performer of of thinking, it might be all right. And that might be your that might be your skill. Your the the power that you have from this erratic way that your mind will work is the thing that other people who are able to do a beginning, a middle and end and are very methodical, they can't do that. So I think that's, an, you know, I think it's very important for a lot of people, as you said, with that medicalization, I think people, it can become a negative thing. It can become, oh, well, that's why I can't do anything. Or it can become something where you go, oh, well, it turns out this also carries with it, as well as the negative sides, um, it carries with it a skill set as well.
1: Fascinating. And I, I do think in that process of um live improvisation whether in a sense whether it's on the page but obviously much more nerve-wracking when it's in front of thousands of people there is a kind of creative spark of play that is almost unmatched in any other form of creative production I mean it's unbelievably nerve-wracking I imagine obviously I don't do stand-up but um but the sense of kind of pure exploration and discovery must be extraordinary I mean I I used to write um a column at the independent and I remember readers would write to me and say oh we didn't we never know where your columns are going to go and, and I thought yeah that's because I don't either and I, I never did know and I found it very nerve-wracking and then a different editor took over and he wanted the headline before I started and I felt my columns weren't nearly as, as good after mm. that but but how do you I mean obviously nerves feature you know are a big part of any kind of performance uh, you've just given some hint of how you manage that but there's a kind of sense of horror in the mix have you learnt emotionally a kind of process to manage it or is that entirely unconscious?
2: I, I find the rest of life is far more nerve-wracking.
1: <laughs> I I, it
2: really is. I, I uh, That time of, you know, sometimes I have little worries or strange paranoias that come into it, strange anxieties or impulsive thoughts or whatever it might be. But actually that, that two hours, hour and a half, whatever it might be, is you know, I I never stop throughout a show and throughout a talk or throughout whatever I'm doing my mind is always just repeating, are they happy? Do you think they're all right? Are they okay? Is this what they're expecting? Are they happy? I think they're okay. But that is, you know, that's not as difficult as getting on the train and thinking about, as that person looked to you, have they judged you? Have you, you know, what have you done? In terms of that kind of more hypervigilant side, that idea of having everyone, you know which direction everyone's looking at you and you hope that they're happy and you're trying as hard as possible to do it. That, that's much easier than, than everything else and and so I don't I don't get I mean it's very odd you know with with doing the huge gigs that I do with Brian where, where you've got 12,000 people it's not you know there's a there's a certain sense of nerves but it's not that and and silly worries you know I mean literally those kind of worries that you go oh my god have I gone to the loo enough times what if I suddenly walk on stage and Brian starts talking and then I go oh god I need the loo and I have to walk you know stupid mm-hmm. those kind of um things but it doesn't have the the worries about the the showing off side of it is 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 not there nearly as much and, and the same with the smaller gigs which is very immediate yes. I mean, that that's what I love about you know going around at the moment to all the different bookshops I'm going to and sometimes there's 12 people because it's a bookshop that you know when people get in contact with me and they said we've got a bookshop where we can only fit 12 people and I'd say that's fine I'll come along there and um So that one, you can actually see every single person's face and you can make a very rapid judgment, frequently a wrong judgment sometimes of what they might be. You know, you you can overly analyze the slightest hint of criticism in in someone's look or the way that someone fidgets, Um, but it's... once I start I mean I did one around I did this gig uh this is such a funny thing to be I was meant to be on tour playing to 12,000 people and now I'm playing 12 and I really enjoy that and it's uh but I, I did someone's back garden in Northampton uh they said we can fit 12 people around the fire do you want to come and do it I said yeah okay and uh, so I just sat behind the fire talking for an hour and a half and uh, initially you just think oh this looks very egotistical and then you just go just go with it just start talking and that's the thing is once I start then it just builds and builds and builds and builds and apart from you know I do have those little worries that come out it feels you know that that thing that everyone talks about now this thing flow state or whatever Mm. it feels the nearest to that that I can get in in my life
1: that's so interesting does it feel like a vocation I mean obviously the word vocation implies that somebody or something is calling you to do something and clearly if one believes that you know there is no intrinsic meaning in the universe and we're just a bunch of atoms that's unlikely but does it feel like a vocation to you
2: it doesn't feel like i could do anything else mm-hmm. if you see what i mean it it feels like this was uh it's you know it's sometimes people say what would you have done if and there is no other you know in all the different forms that i've done whether it's it's writing books or whether it's performing or various different things just having this th- this is the 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 thing that feels like the, there was no other other choice to it so i suppose in that way yes I mean, there might have been, of course, there might be many different things that happened. And it's always interesting, isn't it? The older we get, the more we can sometimes attach ourselves to events in our lives and go, ah, this is why I've gone into this route, or this is why that direction I I went over there. But um, it is what I love most. And it's one of those bits of advice when every now and again, someone says, can you come and do a a talk about doing comedy? And I always go, I don't have got anything to say. I'll, I'll give it a go. And the one thing I always say to people is, is it the only thing you want to do? Because in something like this, I think it's quite important. that You know, well, I can do that, I can do that. You need to have an incredible drive because you're going to find yourself playing a football club where they boo you off and you're going to find yourself having been booed off in a really terrible hotel room and it's dripping and you're just like oh my goodness what you know? What am I doing with my life and so if you had lots of other choices go with those you know it is it, and that's not any kind of, it, but it is everyone that I know who's a stand up whether it's Josie Long or Stuart Lee or, or, or other people who are friends of mine it is what we are it's not a character now there are other people I know who are stand ups who are kind of it is very very much character on stage, and uh, they've you know got their specific ways that they do comedy, and it doesn't feel as much that it is them that the, the themness of them is is very much also ultimately that it is they are a comedian, but maybe comedian's the wrong word; it's whatever they are. They present themselves on stage.
1: Mm. Fascinating. The importance of being interested has partly come out of Infinite Monkey Cage, which has won masses of awards and reached a huge audience you've described your role on it as professional idiot what's the job description and the training
2: the job well i, I worked as an amateur idiot from about february the 20th 1969 which is when it all began uh so i, I you know i built up to and once i could talk about probably you know 1970 71 definitely that i was i was moving towards the the, the direction of, of eventually going pro being uh, an idiot but it was it, it's that bit of i think losing your fear of saying something which can can appear to be silly or, or can you know, because that that's the when I'm sitting there with Brian and, and the and the scientists that are there, some of the questions I have, I think, oh, is this a really simple question? Well they just go and go, you haven't understood anything I've said. And it's overcoming that fear. It's that bit of, you know, because I think so much of our lives, the problem is that we are so easily, you know, kind of shamed. And there are so many people who may well be around us in society who love embarrassing people. Um, And I think the older I've got, the more I've just managed to kind of face up to the idea that say, you know, if you've got an, a question in your mind, then say that question. And see which route you can go down. So that's kind of part of it, you know. And I can ask the questions that that Brian might not be able to ask, or to draw out ideas that he might think, oh, well, that would look a bit weird me saying it because people know that I'm, you know, a professional particle physicist. So that's kind of, you know, part of the job is also to be a bridge for other people to go. So that when they're watching and they're not understanding, they know that they're not the only person who's not understanding everything. Because sometimes you can sit there, you know, in your inner mind and go, I think every Else who's listening to this lecture about quantum mechanics has understood everything, and I'm the only one. And then that will, of course, mean you shy away from returning and you shy away from exploring those areas. So, part of it is you know, a lot and a lot of what the book is about as well is don't be scared, don't be scared of going towards these things. There are so many beautiful ideas there, and you might never win the Nobel Prize and you might never get a deep understanding of these things, but you should enjoy the ride that you have as you start to find out about these things of the universe or these things about ourselves.
1: I found the book absolutely mind-blowing and I read and review a lot of books. The idea that time isn't actually linear feels impossible to grasp. The, the book is actually very, it's very profound and it's beautiful, funny of course, but also um, very inspiring in, in so many ways. And wonder is a very big part of it, the, the sense of wonder at the universe was that a, a big part of what you wanted people to feel in reading it?
2: Yes, I really wanted, I wanted them not to be scared to approach ideas. I wanted them to like I I said before as well this way that I try and persuade myself that you know what it's okay it's okay and sometimes you know it's much easier to fall into kind of a general gray sensation of what it is to be you know it's like when I sit on trains which I do a lot the number of conversations which are about someone's friend who's rubbish and how this is rubbish and I went somewhere it was rubbish and everything was rubbish right and there's far fewer conversations like here where someone talks about I saw this thing and I loved it and I saw this beautiful thing and even though you know there are the words for 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 beauty it seems that the default position um, certainly I noticed in the UK is to just be a bit kind of snarky and a bit miserable and so I wanted to have something which was with luck hopefully would drive people to go oh this is beautiful and this is wonderful and this is exciting and I want to do you know what I want to go out now and I want to go for a hill walk and I want to stand on top of that hill and I want to feel all of that time on top of me and I want to think about all the other people who have walked on top of this hill and stood where I'm standing now and I want to look out at the rocks and I want to think oh look at every single rock that juts." out from the earth is a different possible question and where did where were those rocks before and ah oh, was that ledge over there a coral reef before so it was fine i wanted to find lots of different ways of connecting people to lots and lots of different ideas and it's um it's something that i, I think it was after i wrote my last book in particular that i i i realized you know that that bit when you do have have a use for people and and um and and I think more and more, I think it's something I don't know, don't know where I've gone emotionally or whatever it is. But I I what because I worry about people a lot, and I really uh, I I always think one of my favourite songs of all time is Rock and Roll Suicide by David Bowie, and uh, there's that bit where he sings, Oh no, love, you're not alone, and I think it's become a much more important important thing for me now, to when I've got people in front of me to hopefully that they will feel when they they leave whatever event I've done that maybe they've made a friend with someone who sat next to them or maybe they've just heard an idea, which means they're going to talk about it with someone else, but maybe in particular they don't feel um, slightly as lost as they might have felt before.
1: Mm. I mean, it's almost about the need to cultivate a kind of Martian perspective on things, Mm. um, which I don't know if you read poetry, but uh, Craig Rain was kind of one of the Martian school of poets and that martin perspective is also vital in comedy where you take a step back and you look at everything as if it's alien and a lot of humor can emerge from that but you know many of us can get stale people do get stale in their work what advice would you give them about keeping wonder alive in their work and life
2: I think, I mean, my drive is is always very much that um I like to have found out something in a week that means that the sky looks different to the way that it looked before. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the sky. I use that as a kind of generalization, And I think it's that bit of go out of your comfort zone. Read a book that you don't think was necessarily meant for you. Go to see a film that you think, oh, I was going to go and see that new Marvel movie. But what's this weird little British film here? this strange thing that's been released from Estonia. Let's just go and see what I think of it. Ah, oh, do you know what? There's an Eagles tribute band on at my local art centre, but why don't I just go and see that band that are down the road in the pub? I wonder what they'll be like. And you might leave, but that bit of always just, if you've got the time and if, you, if you're able to do it, and you know, there's lots of free events as well, of course, they're accessible, is to just try and walk in somewhere where you think, I don't know if I like this. I'm not walking in with a certainty that I'm going to hear something like Hotel California. Um, walking in and going, because I love that moment. I love that moment of, you know, just watching a band. Suddenly so go, God, I didn't think I'd like this at all. And this is amazing what they've done. So I think that's, and, and it just, so not falling too much into a routine where you just always go, we're going to book for that because we know we'll like it. Mm. And it's not the same as when you go and see something. And, and you know, t- it's like when I go to a different, different cities, when I'm traveling around, sometimes if I've got the time, I just start walking. I'm not in any direction. I haven't got a map. I just start walking and I think, I wonder where this will lead to And sometimes it leads to nothing, it just leads to some old bins and sometimes you go, "Oh man, there's that house there that oh it's got a little plaque on it or "Oh man, that church is such a weird shape. I'm going to wander around the graveyard and then I make little notes of the strange names on the gravestone's just things things like that it's, you know and I know I'm lucky because I'm in a position where I'm able to have you know not only is it my job but I, I have the time. But I think also we, we it's very easy to have our time eaten up by nothing in particular. Yes. You know, I, I think the times where I've, oh, God, am I still on social media? You've wasted a day doing that get out and go you know go it's like when i was up in in llan which is beautiful in uh, in 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 wales and i just went for a walk and then i thought oh i know this is where the footpath goes but there's another little footpath here and it's a little bit brambly but i'll go through there and you were mentioning poetry and i got to that the blackberry bushes that had been left so the blackberries had rotten you know, rotted on those bushes or dried up. Some were kind of like shiny and manky and others were just dried up. And then I got that that memory of that lovely poem by Seamus Heaney, Blackberry Picking. Mm. And it was just a lovely, you know, I, I managed to find within that diversion something which became transcendent.
1: In the introduction to this book, Brian Cox says you've elevated heartfelt self-deprecation to something of an art form. And I can hear that already in this conversation so far it's sort of the tone of almost everything you do but freelance comedians writers and professional idiots do have to promote themselves is there any tension there and if so how do you manage that tension
2: I think that it's always interesting. it's a bit like flyering in, in uh, at the Edinburgh fringe, uh, where, you know, you would go out and you would fly your own show and then you realise it's much easier to fly someone else's and so you swap round because you know that bit we go, come and see my yeah. show, it's, it's quite good and I do impression of Brian Blessed at one point and people quite like it. Uh, it got four stars from something. I'm very sorry to mention that. And then you do your friend <laughs> show instead. You go. You've got to come and see Josie Lott. She's amazing. She's amazing. and and so you know. Sometimes it's it's always it's like that thing that I worry about with self promotion is sometimes you do find people who only promote themselves and they never promote anyone else. Yeah. And you kind of think you've always got to make sure that you get involved in promoting your friends uh, as well. But it is an odd tension because I think I mean I think it's one of the problems in the arts is a lot of the people who actually have the money uh, in the creative industries uh, they there is an awareness that that a lot of people who are the artist they're rather embarrassed about making money from things even though they need money and they uh and they they think oh but i love what i do so um no I'll, i'll just do it for 30 quid then that's fine and then you have these other people who are there who are making fortunes off other people's creativity and i think that's one of the examples which can be very very problematic in the kind of the the industry of the mass media mm. um is there are you know it's like you see in the it's a bit like when people said that comedy was the new rock and roll no one realized what that really meant is it was nothing to do with sex and drugs it was now over the fact that probably your management company would uh, manage to make a huge profit for <laughs> you, or you got no money whatsoever that was why it was the new rock and roll um so i think yes and i and i think that bit of but there are I I just like when I've got the, the, this book I kind of yeah I, there was a point when I hated this book I did the talking book version and I've found out from a lot of authors since who've gone oh all you see because you're reading it at such speed is I would have written that bit differently I would have written that bit differently because you're doing 30 pages to, you know at such speed all you keep bumping your head against is the clumsy sentence or the thing that you didn't like and then by the end of two and a half days you know in this kind of sponge line little kind of you know enclave that you've been living in you think my, my book is merely mistakes and errors and clumsy <laughs> sentences um and uh, but now i do feel like you yeah, when I have something like this, I'm just going, no, I want people to see it and I want people to read it. And I'm not going to be embarrassed for the time being. And uh, but, yeah, I'm not I'm not a, I'm neither a great salesman nor, nor am I utterly, uh, I, I think, terrible. There's brilliant people I know who uh, should be, as far as I'm concerned, tremendously famous who are so sheepish about their magnificent talent that uh, they have been marginalised.
1: Mm. Well, I just want to be clear that everybody should buy The Importance of Being Interested, published by Atlantic, because it really is a superb book. And and it will, in a weird way, cheer you up, actually, because it's just so full of beauty and wonder. But interesting, when you mention money, you are um, you come from a long line of vicars How did you manage to kind of get yourself into a mindset where, you know, you learnt about kind of, earning money and, and wanting to earn the money you are worth?
2: I don't know if I ever did. I still find it embarrassing to, you know, more often than not, I'll just say, to, oh, don't, don't worry about it. Don't, don't. I just, I remember once doing a gig in it was in Whitby and uh, I had some DVDs out. And uh people went, oh, can I buy one? I went, oh, I'll just have one because you paid for a ticket. And they went, no, 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 I want to buy one because the ticket was to see the show. No, 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 no. You know, I'm that kind of person. I'll, <laughs> I'll try and uh barter myself out of earning uh, anything. But um, so I've, ne- I think I've been very lucky also because I have the advantage of the background that I come from. I think there is a huge advantage in the fact that coming from a middle class background, uh there was something of a safety net as well you know I would it would be unlikely that I would end up out out on the streets um whereas for other people and that's there's great organizations like Arts Emergency which you know it really encourage people from lots of different backgrounds to know that they can be poets or comedians or musicians or whatever um so I think having having the safety net of having a family where you can always go back to your old bedroom is very yeah. different to what a lot of other people have and uh, but i think i was also brought up to not be you know to, to be careful with money but also never use it like, like like my dad you know he he passed over promotion in the company that he worked for because he knew that it would eat into the time uh in terms of looking up and looking after and bringing up the family and things like that and i think that's you know those kind of things are in 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 the system thanks to the kind of values that I had when I was a kid
1: Mm. and also as someone who comes from a long line of vicars how did you become an evangelist for doubt I I wanted to write (laughs) a book a few years I wanted to write a book a few years ago about the importance of doubt and was told there was no commercial market for it so (laughs) Tell
2: oh me. you should write it there is there is there is <laughs> I, I think it's I think never has it been more important with well, the way I agree social media I agree the but the I got sick work of yeah property. I got oh, sick oh, of
1: flogging God. the idea but so tell me how do you become an evangelist for it
2: well, I think you know it's sometimes I've done a few gigs this week in churches because, of course, when you do book festivals and and things like that, sometimes the biggest venue in the small town is the church, and and there is a bit where I think, ah, yes, I'm still I'm still doing I'm doing the job of my ancestors. I'm still standing there and saying, "Let me tell you of the stars as the light comes to the stars, the photon untampered by anything until it meets your eye," and all. Of the, so, uh, so I think you know that's I, I never had any really deeply held belief. So though I was brought up in, in a kind of in the anglican church I, I i think i always held on you know I, I'm, I'm sure there was i'm always fascinated in knowing what god looked like in my head when i did believe in, in in god but i think it was very much a kind of uh something merely inherited from from the culture i was in it was never a passionate or, or a strong belief um and i think now what drives me on more and more is just seeing the levels of kind of there, there was a nice little line actually that someone did tweet the other day which said just because we disagree does not mean you're my enemy mm. and i thought well you know, that's the problem that we've hit now especially because the extreme sides of any argument it's much easier to monetize them yeah. we see it everywhere and it's not as if it's a new problem, you know, you go through history, but we've now, there's now different ways that those platforms and those megaphones can be handed to people. But I think that's also driven my desire to say to people, hold on to your truths with a loose grip because they might change and, you know, and realise that, you know, this is a universe filled with doubt. Um, and, you know, the more certain you are, the more you cut yourself off from being able to ask all manner of fascinating questions.
1: Well, the airwaves, social media, and government are also full of people with a burning sense of certainty, which is, you know, rather depressing, to put it mildly. What can we do beyond writing books like yours to encourage what you call the Goldilocks portion of doubt?
2: I think one of the things is. It's all down to stories as well. I mean, this is one of the things that's got missed out in in, I think some of the science education is we don't have enough stories. And I think the stories are the really, really important bit. Um and I think it is, you, you just look at history and you go, this was a firm belief and this was a firm belief. And you know what, doubt is a lot more fun because you sometimes imagine that certainty is a lot of fun for people and it gives them, oh, good, they're certain. But you know what, a lot of the people I see who are really certain, they seem to be furious all the time because people may well go, oh, you're saying I'm wrong. Well, I'm not wrong. So they get so aggressive that I don't see very much happiness in certainty. And in fact, you know, I write a little bit about religion in the book and all of my friends who are religious, you know, which, which include people who are bishops and stuff like that they're filled with doubt their religion is not a religion of certainty their religion you know my friend victor stock who was former dean of guildford cathedral you know he he has i think more doubt about the things that he deals with religiously in his life than he does about the big bang or natural selection or any of those ideas Mm -hmm. and i think it is it's realizing that you know certainty just cuts off so many paths
1: yes which aspects of your work do you it's kind of clear which you like most, which is basically being on stage rambling in a, a <laughs> genius like manner which bits of your overall work portfolio do you use a grand word do you like least, and how do you manage them
2: oh that's really hard it is i mean do you know what it's it's the traveling to the gigs it's mm. it's everything that is around the work it is not normally the work itself and then in terms of writing the thing that I I like least is editing I hate and I've met lots of authors who love editing I hate it mm. I like like you know on stage blah, blah 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 tip type tip type tip type tip type tip type tip type you've got to cut out a hundred thousand words boring terrible, terrible. You know, that... the
1: same, awful <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh
2: I'm always amazed when I meet people who enjoy editing their work um so so I would say the two things are the persistent standing in the vestibule to be told that the train is delayed. Yeah. When you know I'm just like like yesterday when I got to Birmingham and then Birmingham is a city that I love playing, and I love me I've met so many brilliant people in Birmingham, but it has a structure as a city which means that sat navs still do not understand how to get you anywhere because Birmingham is it has you know something very idiosyncratic about where they place the different roadworks and where somewhere suddenly becomes comes one way or a building has sprung up and so there you will see me you know screaming in the street like a like a, a hobo preacher um so those are the two things Ed- editing and and but I love if I've got space on a train if or if it's a beautiful train line you know I was lucky I, I traveled from Carlisle to Settle and then Settle to Ilkley last week and you look out of the window and that for me you know there are plenty of transcendent moments when it's like that
1: Amazing. So you're on this 100 bookshop tour, which, as you say, some of them are relatively small numbers, some quite big, but it must be absolutely knackering and also quite weird after 18 months of um, not doing all that much that's live. What does it feel like to be? I mean, did you find it in any way tiring connecting with people in, in audiences again or did you just snap right back into it?
2: I snapped right back it's like yesterday like when I finally got to a 40 minute walk from Birmingham New Street which took an hour I was soaking by the time because this was the last day of I've actually got home now but I'm, I'm off immediately after this to another gig and I start oh. touring again oh. but I had two huge bags of books because I'd been to all these brilliant bookshops I had a rucksack on with all the books I thought I was going to read when I left the house two weeks before I had a wheelie suitcase and I'm like uh, sh- uh, uh, and then I arrive then I think don't swear at anyone they're all nice people they're not the reason you've gotten lost blah 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 hello hello your cup of tea would be lovely and I'm sitting there and I'm all damp everything's damp and I'm kind of oh 10 minutes time I've got to start eulogizing science and curiosity will it happen and then of course they start coming in and snap change every and it's and it's not a putting on a face it just everything changes at that point so um and, and it has generally been like that. You know, it's a fascinating thing. The first gig back, Walthamstow Trades Club. And it was lovely because the audience were worried that maybe they'd forgotten how to be an audience. And, you know, you're worried about you've forgotten how to be an act. And you can't go straight back in. You're never going to go in. If, you, if you've not done your work for 18 months, you can't just return immediately and go, ah, this is how I... But I like, had a lovely time. But I was like, oh, my brain doesn't quite yet work the way it should. And then the next night I did a gig and I went, ah, oh, there we go. Now we're back into it um and so yeah and i and i very rare, i'm sure there will come a time where especially cuz i've got whatever it is i've still got 90 i think it's 94 gigs in oh. in the next about 56 days oh. um it might it might be slightly less uh but for the time being the first 23 in in the first 11 days uh every single time was was an absolute treat for me it might not be for them but it was for me
1: well i'm absolutely sure it was for them and and you know, the the thing about what you do is it brings people an awful lot of joy. How does it feel to know that your day job uh, essentially increases people's joy? Well,
2: again, it's something that I've realised... Uh, I think more and more over the last few years because there's a lot of quite negative comedy out there. The stuff that's called edgy comedy, which is actually very often regressive comedy. That's not very edgy. It's kind of a replication of a lot of the things that are already in the nastier sides of the mass media. So I, yeah, I think if anything I've got driven more and more and more to want to create shows that will make people happy. Mm. And it does make me happy. It makes it, it is a really lovely thing. It's embarrassing, of course, and you could kind of go' oh, thank you very much blah, 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 but uh because we're we're programmed to be embarrassed by anyone having enjoyed the experience of our existence um and uh, but it is uh sometimes the stories that i 'll hear, and sometimes i mean sometimes it's nice things where the Christmas shows that i've put on for years celebrating kind of science with loads of music and comedy as well i I know there's people who have met there and got married, and that's a oh. lovely thing. And then I know there's people who have been going through very bad times with their mental health and they have heard something and it has sometimes been just that little moment of going, oh, oh, that's a, there's a a window that's just a good, right. I can see a little bit of light now. And that's, and those kind of things are are, are tremendously meaningful. Um, And, and as I said, they get the, the older I get, the more and more important they are. And I think once I started noticing that and people were coming up to me, it was like everything seemed to to change it was it was, it was wonderful. Uh, and it's given me this drive to just go, I, I really want people to be happy.
1: Mm, I mean, you know, what could be better in life, really, than to than to be making people happy through your work? I think that's rarely as pure in a way uh, as comedy, because everybody loves to laugh. How would you suggest to people who have more mundane jobs that they find and create joy at work
2: That's hard isn't it? I think it's the honesty and communication is quite an important thing theres the, there's um a while ago I was chatting to Philippa Perry and she talked about the fact that uh, the strange thing about being human is that we judge everyone from their exterior and ourselves from the interior. Hmm. And I think one of the ways of being happy is to not be worried about false competition that may well seem to exist, to have moments of honesty of sometimes saying, Do you know what, today's been really hard for me. Are you OK? Are you, Yeah, I think that's that bit of just checking that other people are OK and not presuming that everyone in the workplace because I think in some workplaces it can seem like there's always competition that everyone else is trying to beat each other and that moment of just opening up and a moment of of uh kind of true honesty I th- I think can make everything much happier you know that moment where someone suddenly says Do you know what I'm having a bit of a problem at home actually and uh oh, yeah yeah that 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 thing where you can share those. And then from that also, from that level of honesty, is also, I think, where a new sense of humour can become. It's, it's not just that humour, which is, I think, quite often in workplaces, humour can always be about power structures in a room. So it's, ha ha, I did a joke about that person and now they feel a bit smaller. Ah, now someone's done a joke about me and now I feel it. And it can often be on that kind of, uh, you know, that that very limited range of power structures. And I think trying to get rid of that to some extent in your social life is uh, in in your, your work social life, I think can lead to lots of much more interesting places.
1: Very, very wise, and Philippa Perry is unbelievably wise as well, isn't she? I think almost great, almost yeah. everything she says, you just think, "Oh wow, that's a really interesting perspective." Robin, have you had any really terrible times in your work, and if so, how have you coped with them?
2: It is. I mean, as I said earlier on, it's a really difficult thing in terms of you know you you're in a you can quite often find yourself you're miles from home you're in a town that seems very cold and dark and you go the stand on stage and people do not like what you represent and maybe you go to the loo and you hear someone actually walking in and going oh that bloke was rubbish right and you carry that with you because what you carry with you is when you hear someone saying that you're rubbish they've seen the truth and when someone says by the way I thought that gig was fantastic you've somehow got away with it Mm -hmm. and I think you know that battle is 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 a major part of of you know just getting through life and trying to find out that balance so, so very often like a you know sometimes you know before gigs and sometimes in place sometimes I, I mean i had a period of time where i was going to stop doing stand up i was on tour in australia i've been on tour in america i had done things that i was like oh 23 year old me would not believe what was going on now and uh and then i just um, and I was like, oh, I just don't think I'm happy. I was just in this fug all the time. I thought I, I need to disconnect from ev- everything. I think maybe I'll stop doing infinite monkey cage and I'll resign from that. I need to, you know, th- there's a certain side of me that often wants to disconnect and just stay in, in in my attic, not go anywhere. Because if you don't connect with anyone, then you're not going to get into trouble and you're not going to let people down. And and that's a battle that I've had on and off, you know, for, for uh, a lot of... The, time I think in and which is connected to my work I mean it's connected to my life as a whole in the way that I can kind of feel but I think that can be that that desire just to be under the sheets is Mm. you know and hide from everyone
1: well thank god you have not locked yourself in your attic thank you so much Robin Ince it's been a really fascinating conversation and thank you for bringing so many people so much joy
2: oh thank you it's very nice of you
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you like this conversation, do subscribe to the Art of Work on Apple, Spotify, or any of the main podcast directories, and do please share, rate it, and/or leave a review. For tips, wisdom, and advice about the Art of Work, do follow at the Art of Work on Twitter or at theartofwork.co on Instagram, and do join me next week.